You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. And this week, we are taking a look at the cost of climate change and how it's created some volatility with what is traditionally the safest of stocks. We'll also look at how fossil fuels are having a heartbreaking impact all the way to the South Pole. But first, we begin with the economic cost of an increasingly warmer planet. Natural disasters like deadly hurricanes and wildfires from Canada to Louisiana are tragic in terms of lives lost. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards. Nobody alive in Louisiana has ever seen these conditions. It's never been this hot, this dry, for this long. But that is not to say we should dismiss the economic damage, which is often substantial. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell says the Disaster Relief Fund can cover the wildfire disasters in Maui, Louisiana, and the hurricane damage in Florida for now. If we continue to see more storms, we're going to uh, continuously monitor very closely the health of the Disaster Relief Fund to determine what more may be needed. But right now, as the situation stands, the supplemental request will get us through the end of this fiscal year. Let's talk about this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Claudia Som. Now, Claudia is the founder of Som Consulting and a former Federal Reserve economist. She joins me now. Claudia, your column on the Bloomberg Terminal minces no words. You actually call heat the silent killer. What do you mean by that? We can see on the news when there's a hurricane, a tornado, like it's it's very apparent. Heat is another, extreme heat is another natural disaster, another way, and, and yet we don't, I mean, we don't see it. Like there's nothing on the news where you can say, oh, there's the, you know, 90 degree weather. Now this summer there was more, I mean, this was a really hot uh, summer. So that's what they mean by a silent killer. You don't, you don't necessarily see it coming. Right, because normally when we think of natural disasters, we think of the hurricanes, the mm-hmm. wildfires, the right. the storms, the flooding. We don't usually think of triple-digit temperatures. Mm-hmm. And people do suffer from them, and and it's hard to get your work done. I mean, that's what the the post is talking a lot about what it means for work and productivity, uh, in addition to the human costs, like the silent killer. So let's get into that, how higher temperatures are actually impacting the economy. And the obvious answer, of course, is there's a lot of damage done by the wildfires Mm -hmm. and the hurricanes and the flooding. But you actually dig deeper, getting into the labor sector. Tell us about that. Well, and one reason to do this is I want to underscore the economic impacts, the damage done, are not just where the damage is done. Right. So it's not just the rebuilding. It, it affects all of us because it makes workers less productive. It may, for example, uh, farm workers that are trying to bring in the crops like they it's, it's very difficult for them to do it. They have to shift the hours when they do it. Well, that shows up in our prices. They're higher. Maybe there's less. Veg- so it's not just where the natural disaster happens that the economic damage is. It it's all of us. It's spread all across. And again, we don't see that, but that's a really important, and that's what I wanted to say is the economic costs of these disasters, we experience them too, right? They're, they're everywhere. And again, it's because in the same amount of time when it's really hot, workers just, they can't get as much done or it's just, or they can't do anything, right? Because it's just too hot. So we're talking beyond the localized 
impact that you might see work um, um, folks who are like uh, construction workers, let's say in Houston, unable to finish their day because it was dangerously hot. So they mm-hmm. had to cut off early or they had to m- modify their workday or what have you. Mm-hmm. That somehow from Houston will impact folks elsewhere beyond Houston, beyond Texas. Well, it adds to a housing crisis. So it, you know, pushes up the housing prices, maybe fewer people move there and they stay in other areas. I mean, it's, you know, for some industries, it's maybe harder to tell the story of labor productivity, but it's there. Again, we can't see it. And, And productivity is so important for not just economic growth, but that's really what we think of as the engine of our prosperity. Right. And if the extreme weather events are cutting into that, they are already cutting into that, let alone the fact that uh, with climate change, they will get worse. I want to get into that, but I want to also look at some of the other sectors that might be struggling mm-hmm. with this more than others. Mm-hmm. We've we've already mentioned agriculture. Um, what else is out there um, along with because ag- agriculture is really the most mm-hmm. obvious one? Yeah. Right. And it, it actually is one of these smaller groups of workers. Like they're very affected, but agriculture workers are not a huge part of the labor force. Right. And so, but there are other industries in uh, heat exposed industries. And in fact, if you add them all up, they're about 20% of the workforce. Right. So these and, and other examples would be uh, communication. You know, if you're out there putting up the telephone poles, you know, working outside. Um, Transportation is another one, which makes sense. And in fact, in the new union contract that UPS negotiated, part of their deal was air conditioners in the trucks. Right. right? That's that's Did exactly. That you at all that that they no, because this is part. I mean, it, human comfort, right? Like you sure. driving around in ninety degree weather, and yet that's exactly an example of. I mean, it was making them hard and miserable to do their jobs. So an air conditioner. Well, well, that has environmental effect. Like air conditioning is not always the solution, but that was an example to me of, aha, that they are trying to and will raise that productivity, right? Because that's an example of a heat-exposed uh, sector. So those are communication, transportation. Those are some of the uh, construction, like you mentioned. Those are some of the bigger uh, industries that are um, heat-exposed. Heat and we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Claudia Sam about how the heat is already showing up as a drag on economic productivity. Um, let's talk about the other demographics. Does it matter what your income is? Does it matter where you live? Absolutely. The Another aspect of heat exposure, so it's not just when you're at work. There are, um, there are real disparities in who is exposed in where they live, the neighborhoods they're in. Uh, there was one study that estimated that in Washington, D.C., there can be a 17-degree difference across the city in terms of how hot it is, right? And that's, I mean, that's enormous. And where that comes from is that that some areas of the city, particularly lower-income areas of the city, are what are called heat islands. Sure. So the way the buildings are built, there's not a lot of trees. There, So there's not a way to... Uh, you know, kind of absorb the energy, or the heat, it, it like bounces off and it's all in the neighborhood. Where in, in more affluent parts, neighborhoods, there are more trees, there are solar, like there are ways that uh, really 
blunt the effect of the heat. Now, it's hot there, too, but again, by income, these huge differences in heat obviously mean that when it's hot outside, it's going to be even hotter in areas with low income. And these are areas that often don't have air conditioning. They don't have uh, a way to really protect themselves from the adverse effects of the heat. Like areas, neighborhoods that may have more lawns, more shrubbery, right. more trees mm-hmm. are going to right. s- definitely see a difference in temperature than areas that are all asphalt and concrete. Right, exactly. Does this also impact more social programs like education? How so? Right. These are some of these studies are, I think, some of the most depressing. I mean, we're not just hurting labor productivity now. I mean, workers' ability to do their jobs now. We're we are undercutting the productivity, the the ability to work and be prosperous of future generations. Mm-hmm. So there there is a study that shows in schools when it is hotter in the school, students' uh, educational outcomes are worse. So and they measure this with you know PSAT scores, SAT scores. So that's and. And then in schools where it's uh, cooler or they have air conditioning, or you don't you don't see these effects. So I mean, it it makes sense if you're in a hot, sticky room, being able to concentrate and do your work is difficult. Again, this is one where you see racial uh, income disparities, and and again, this is showing we're we're affecting the next generation like right now. So I want to end this on at least a hopeful note, if there okay. is one, because. It is depressing, and it's not going away. This isn't changing. Uh, is there a solution? What do we do? Well, big picture, the solution is you know dealing with the the rising heat, right? And these are these are problems that you know at a national level. You know we have uh, part of the Inflation Reduction Act was to have a climate change policy, and those kind of policies have to be at the national level and frankly, at the global level, sure. right? So a, a real fix to this is is big picture. There are areas of the country uh, that have tried to put uh, ordinances in place, uh, plant more trees, sure. uh, various things to, to deal with the, high, the higher temperature. Like Phoenix is the hottest, temp- or hottest uh, city in the country. They can't lower the temperatures, but they can take steps that will help the workers. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Claudia Som. Claudia is the founder of Som Consulting and a former Federal Reserve economist. She's also the creator of the Som Rule, which is a recession indicator. Now, coming up, we're going to continue this conversation from a different point of view, how climate change is actually upending traditionally dependable utility stocks. That's just ahead. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Let's continue the discussion about climate change and its economic impact. Now, we've talked about the cost of labor and the impact on agriculture, construction, manufacturing, even education and other heat-exposed jobs. 
Now we're going to look at utilities. You know about lawsuits against Hawaii Electric after the wildfires in Maui. And in Texas, where a heat dome for much of the summer baked the state with triple-digit temperatures, the power grid has been under considerable strain. Tom Overby is with the Smart Grid Center. We have eight urban search and rescue teams staged, ready to go, 33 ambulance strike teams, 5,500 National Guardsmen. Uh, we also have the Coast Guard on standby uh, should that be necessary. Let's talk now with Liam Denning, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers energy and commodities. Liam, thank you for taking the time with us. The conventional wisdom has been for decades that utilities are the safe bet on Wall Street. Climate change seems to be upending that. Bring us up to speed. Well, the short story on that is that they were always seen as safe stocks because, you know, if you think about what utilities do, they build and maintain essential infrastructure for a service that none of us can can do without. The reason they're peculiarly exposed to climate change is for the same reason. Their infrastructure, uh, particularly in certain parts of the country, is very exposed to the sorts of natural disasters that are likely to become more frequent and more intense, uh, less predictable uh, due to climate change. Uh, and as we've seen in the recent case with um, Hawaiian Electric, uh, they can also find themselves blamed uh, for those natural disasters, particularly wildfires where, where, um, where power lines get implicated uh, in sparking them. Is there a possibility that it could, and forgive the terminology, but that it could somehow also help? It can up to a point. If climate change demands that you uh, strengthen the grid, harden it, maybe you know do something like burying power lines in the ground in order to avoid wildfire risk, that sort of thing, then uh, the utility will make a return on that investment. Where, of course, it can go too far is that if you have a huge natural disaster that leads to uh, extensive damage, uh, leads to fatalities and the resulting lawsuits from victims, um, then obviously the utility can be confronted with costs that simply overwhelm it. Um, we saw this, uh, you know, most, um, most famously with PG&E in Northern California in the wildfires that happened there in 2017 and 2018. Are we seeing more of that impact lately? And you've, you've cited two examples, Maui and Northern California, both of them with wildfire uh, being the natural disaster. Are we seeing more of it lately? Are you expecting to see more of it lately? We've seen similar cases. We've seen, um, we've seen a case uh, involving Pacificorp, which is uh, part of um, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, relating to a, a, um, a fire in uh, Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, and also Excel, which is a utility operating in Colorado. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, based on the track record of the last uh, five or so years, if you are a utility in a mountainous uh, territory in the western U.S., in particular the drier parts of uh, the U.S., then your risk of wildfire is... Um, is elevated, but those aren't the only places where you know climate change is likely to lead to uh, more intense disasters. I mean, um, Florida obviously is no stranger to um, hurricanes, but those hurricanes are likely to get more intense over time. Um, we've seen um, extreme weather events in Texas that took down the grid uh, in early 
2019. So my feeling would be that as climate change leads to less predictable and more intense weather impacts, that will have a disproportionate effect on infrastructure, particularly power grid infrastructure that was built for a different time. Remember, most of our power grid was built during the 20th century. It's built at a time when we, sure, we had natural disasters, but we, we didn't really contemplate what something like climate change might portend. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Liam Denning about the impact of climate change on what you know, conventional wisdom would call more stable stocks like utilities, but that's all changing now. Uh, Liam, you mentioned that this is bound to keep just getting worse with more natural disasters, more wildfires. Can green grids help with this? The 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 push towards smart grids, green grids are are they helping? You know, the long term mitigation effort against climate change is obviously decarbonization, so that involves. Um, uh, using a lot more renewable energy, um, electrifying a lot more of our industrial and transportation processes over time. Um, it's, uh, you know, that's kind of, think of that as kind of your, your long-term insurance plan against um, uh, climate change getting much worse. Um, in terms of more immediate fixes, uh, distributed energy can, can help, i.e. use of things like microgrids, um, uh, you know, uh, home and um, and um, business sited energy systems can help you. Um, you know, in the event that the grid goes down, you'll you'll be able to potentially supply your own power for a bit. Of course, a lot of those systems remain more expensive relative to the grid. Um, but over time, you may find communities paying that extra premium. Um, if they feel that they're exposed um, to uh, to natural disasters that might take down their their local their local grid, think of it as an insurance premium. How does this impact customers versus the companies? I mean, ultimately, all of this cost comes back to the the customers. You know, one thing you need to think about with regards to utilities is, you know, say you have a utility that is found absolutely liable for a major wildfire disaster is confronted with a massive bill um, that uh, would force it, you know, to go to go into bankruptcy as PG&E did. Um, mm -hmm. Now, with a normal business, what happens is you go into bankruptcy, generally the equity and a lot of the debt gets wiped out. The company emerges with a clean balance sheet and it carries on. Um, utilities, the problem with utilities is once you get through the initial shock and aftermath of a, of a wildfire or other natural disaster, you still need to keep the lights on, which means you still need a functioning utility. The, the state has an interest in making sure that maybe equity holders and especially debt holders don't get wiped out because once you're through that period, that company still needs to go back to capital markets. And so with PG&E, you had a very weird bankruptcy where it emerged with something like three times the debt it had going into it. Um, and that was because they wanted to keep bondholders whole. And they found different ways of basically, you know, handling the costs of that disaster. But ultimately, it all flows down into your electricity bill, it has to be paid for, and it will end up jacking up the rates. And I think in a place like Hawaii, especially, which already pays the highest electricity rates uh, in the country, um, that those are going to rise uh, quite a bit further. Climate change and the associated uh, effort of decarbonization, these are things that just 
didn't really exist in a real sense, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, certainly not, not in the minds of ourselves or in the minds of economists. And so that's effectively a new cost that's been put onto society and it has to be paid for. It can be paid for broadly in two ways. One is paying for efforts to mitigate it or paying for the cost of cleanup. I would suggest that mitigating it is probably the better investment, um, but um, either way it has to be paid for. Liam Denning, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers energy and commodities and also a former investment banker. Now, don't forget we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Around parts of Antarctica last year, entire colonies of emperor penguins lost all of the chicks that they'd incubated through weeks of darkness, 100-mile-per-hour winds, and brutal sub-zero temperatures. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has listed the emperor penguin as endangered. They depend on sea ice as a platform to breed and raise their chicks, but the ice is melting too early and the flocks of chicks lost all drowned. Let's find out what's going on. Faith Lamb is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers science and hosts the Follow the Science podcast. She joins me now. Faye, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time with me. Um, baby penguins. There's no way anybody can see the headline about baby penguins on the Bloomberg terminal and not go, oh, I have to read about this. Yes, they are what people would call a charismatic species. You know, it sometimes is used in a good way and sometimes sort of a way to say, well, people pay too much attention to these ones that are cute and we should pay attention to other species, though they're charismatic for good reason because they're such interesting animals in so many ways. Now, how dire is this? And and to be clear, your column isn't just about fossil fuels and baby penguins. That's just the hook. What you're talking about is the impact of climate change and global warming and man's role in that on species. Penguins just happen to be what's going on now. Yeah, that was just in the news. And it just made me think about this bigger philosophical question. You know, so often when we talk about endangered species, we talk about the potential use for humans. You know, maybe some rainforest plant would have the cure for cancer or disappearing frogs might have a chemical that's useful for medicine in their bloodstream. And, and you know, it, it sort of got me thinking, well, what about animals that may or may not be useful to humans? What, you know, should we care about them and why? And I think that often is just something people feel intuitively, but don't really think about that, that many of us just think intuitively, of course we should care because they make the world a better place. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of open that discussion up. And I think that even though a lot of people argued about the role of global warming, you know, there are lots of natural fluctuations that can affect penguin colonies, but there is a, there is you know, a huge scientific consensus that there is an overall trend, warming trend that is caused by human activities and that is causing the biggest changes at the polar regions of the planet. So how dire is this? Are penguins going extinct? Are other animals at risk? Yeah, I mean, a lot of animals are going to go extinct in the next few decades if global warming sort of continues at the pace it's continuing. And some, even if we you know, change things will will go extinct. Emperor penguins, actually, there are quite a few colonies that are still doing okay that are in more stable regions of Antarctica. But if the trend continues unabated, they they would eventually go extinct because they 
they, I mean, they're they're sort of contradictory. They're like the toughest animals you can imagine when you think about them spending this time, you know, in minus 50 degrees and the wind and they sit on the, they, they, they're out there incubating these eggs. But they're also delicate in a way because they depend on conditions being just so. They have to have the sea ice last through the winter. If it gets too warm and, and the, they lose the ice, then the chicks can get wet and that's just deadly. Then, you know, as one of the scientists said, they turn into little ice cubes and hundreds of them can die. So how is this linked to the use of fossil fuels? I'm just going to push back against you a little bit because <laughs> yes, uh, you did I mean, it's all, yes, that is the main you know, main, uh, when you talk about human activities and climate change, you know, that's the big one. There's also deforestation, you know, there, there's methane, um, you know, there's the, that, the cattle industry, but fossil fuels, that's the, you know, that's the big one. That's the one that is putting the, the, the you know, that's changed the amount of CO2 in our atmosphere. And that uh, is, has been long predicted to cause global warming. And now we're really seeing the consequences in a way that people had predicted decades ago. What else are scientists noticing? Well, I mean, the the uh, the polar regions have the biggest, you know, are are are, are showing the biggest changes. And uh, you know, years ago, people talked about polar bears, and that was sort of the iconic species. And because the the sea ice is melting in in the Arctic, and now you know that they're seeing some of the same kinds of changes in Antarctica, that the 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 polar regions you know, are, are warming and there's this sea ice that is melting much earlier or not even ever forming. So that's, you know, and that's a big consequence. There's also um, apparently the sea ice in, in the Antarctic region is important for the, the growth of krill, which are the, you know, the little plankton at the bottom of the food chain. And if we lose a lot of those, that could actually cause a collapse in uh, the populations of fish that people depend on for food. Now, we're talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faith Lamb about how global warming may be exacerbating the elimination of baby penguins, among other species. Now, Faye, Antarctica is definitely a brutal place, but it also seems like a unique gauge for the health of the planet. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, and over time, you know, Antarctica has been, it's been warm there, it's changed over long, long, long periods of time, but we're seeing changes that are really fast. And so animals that are adapted to that area, you know, these penguins have become adapted to it. And it's the things are changing there so fast that they just can't, they're not going to be able to hold on. And they're seeing, you know, the, these whole colonies depend on, they to replace themselves, they have to uh, raise a chick every year and a lot of them die. And if they go too many seasons without um, producing enough offspring, then the whole colonies will disappear. So yeah, in some ways it is, you know, we're seeing the most extreme effects there, but we're seeing, you know, we're seeing these effects all over the planet. Who cares if we lose yeah. a species? Why is that important? Yeah, that was something I just felt like was an, a philosophical problem that we should all talk about because I think people sort of take for granted that you know, people that think it's important just think it, that that species have a right to exist and make the planet a better place. Sort of take for granted that everybody feels that way, and some people don't. So I think that's a philosophical question that we should start talking about. And one of the books I think that was really influential uh, that touched on that was *Silent Spring* by Rachel Carson, and she talks about how the world is just a lesser place without these wonderful 
sounds of birds in the spring and um but it's not trivial it's not silly it's not something that that only silly people worry about you know this is and these changes can be permanent is there hope to reverse this can we slow it down where's the break how do we put a break on this yeah there's still a lot of room you know there's still time to there's there's still you know people look at these models and they're not perfect but they can see the trajectory if we do nothing they can see a different trajectory where it doesn't get as warm if we start to cut back so there, there certainly are ways if we made big changes in the next couple of decades that we could see much less global warming so there's there's a huge amount of room to to make changes i mean there are a lot of complications there but there is definitely it's not too late it's not all you know certain amount of warming is as they say baked into the system but there's still a huge range of what could happen over the coming decades, depending on how what, how humans make changes in um, our our sources of energy. Are you surprised at all, just on a personal level, the amount of data and information that you put out there in your columns on the Bloomberg Terminal? And sometimes there are people who will not be swayed when it comes to global warming, and there's that pushback. Yeah, which is part of the reason I wanted to open up some of these these deeper issues about why people care and why people should care. Because I, I believe in understanding. I don't believe in demonizing people who disagree with you. I think that the only way we're going to move forward is to talk it out, not to have people screaming at each other and calling each other names, but just, you know, to to acknowledge and, and try to find out why people feel so strongly that we shouldn't make changes and that are you know we're so polarized in this country and people are sometimes just picking that side because that's where their political tribe lies but i think it's 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 such an important issue that we should all be talking about why we care about it and science can only tell you you know so much it can't what it can't tell you what to care about where to put your priorities in some ways that is a, a human decision Faith Lamb is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She covers science and she is the host of the Follow the Science podcast. Bloomberg Opinion continues as we wrap up our look at extreme weather and climate change and what we might be facing in our own hometowns. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Extreme weather is coming to your town, too. It's not just a question of if, but when, and whether your property, your power grid, and your politicians are going to be ready for it. We welcome Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jessica Carl, author of the Bloomberg Opinion Today newsletter. She's got a whole chunk of the newsletter devoted to this. Now, Jessica, tell us about the newsletter itself. Of course, it's called Bloomberg Opinion Today. It's a daily flagship newsletter for the opinion team. Has opinions on everything from business to economics to politics to technology. Um, and it's delivered to your inbox every afternoon. I write it Monday through Thursday, um, and then we have a weekend edition as well. You can subscribe by going to bloomberg.com opinion, and you'll see a sign up bar on the right hand side. 
in the newsletter, you include information from the different columns uh, that we've been talking about regarding climate change. You know, Los Angeles just saw its first tropical storm in 84 years. Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas hammered by Hurricane Adalia. Louisiana, Hawaii, Canada dealing with wildfires. There was that massive heat dome over more of the country than not. But there are still those folks who are completely unfazed, in part because they're not feeling the impact yet. What do you say? Yes. I mean, in a state like California, where we saw Hillary hit, it was a once in a you know lifetime type of tropical storm. Only 2% of homes in that state have flood insurance. So there are like huge swaths of the country that just aren't accounting for these risks, which are becoming more varied. You don't know where these storms are going to hit. You don't know, you know, if it's going to be a snowstorm or a wildfire or a flood. Um, and it's just there are a lot of households that are ditching home insurance because it's becoming more expensive because of that sure, risk. So it's sure. just kind of snowballing and getting worse and worse. In Florida, only one in five Floridians has flood protection, which kind of gives you an idea in a state where you're expecting floods, only one in five of them are covered. And you make the point in the in the newsletter that part of the problem is the flood map by FEMA is out of date. This is not good. This is critical. No, yeah. And that flood map, is, it, it, it hinges on everything. So lots of businesses, it helps dictate their building standards. It helps dictate what, when and where people can build homes. Um, and those flood maps are not forward looking at all. They're very much backward looking. And that's what insurers are realizing. They're playing this game of catch up. They're, they're contacting their reinsurers to help them, um, which is why people are seeing their premiums rise into double digits because, you know, they're realizing that, oh, shoot, the maps that we've been using are not, you know, accounting fully for the risk. They're actually undercounting it. So what's the government's role in this? The National Flood Insurance Program is part of this. Tell me about that. Yes. So it's a five decades old program. So it's existed for quite some time, managed by FEMA. Uh -huh. um, it's called the National Flood Insurance Program, and it's the primary source of flood insurance for over 5 million Americans. And it expires actually on September 30th, which would be a great time for them to kind of reinvigorate this program and make it stronger. But what Congress has been doing ever since 2017 is just reauthorizing it. They're not really improving it by much. So our columnist, Jonathan Levin, which is one of the people that covers climate and insurance for us at Bloomberg Opinion, he's says that the government should stop with those short-term things and actually strengthen it to make it better for homeowners, which part of that would be updating those flood maps um, and allowing homeowners and insurers to account for the risks, which, you know, would just, the, the insurance fees wouldn't come all at once. They would be more gradual over time, which would allow the program to actually be sustainable, which it currently is not. Um, and if they further build up their debt, that's just, it's going to all tumble down uh, eventually and it's not going to be good for the government or, or its coffers. <laughs> so what is the guidance at this point? What do we do? I think the biggest thing, homeowners are feeling the crunch of inflation all around them, but they shouldn't look at their insurance premium and go, oh, this is the time for me to just stop you know, paying it and just ditch insurance, home insurance altogether, flood insurance at least. They need to get used to those fees and build it into their budgets. I know that, you know, putting it on the consumer is not ideal, but, um, and insurers are realizing that as well. And it's just an unfortunate price that we're going to have to pay as, as the weather gets more extreme. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jessica Carl is author of the Bloomberg Opinion Today newsletter. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are just ahead. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg.